The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Well, today we want to open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and we return to the study of worship of the New Testament church, worship in the church. For the past several weeks, we have discussed worship in the Old Testament. So we talked about the Ark of the Covenant that typified Christ. Um, typified him to Israel, and Israel worshipped the Messiah who was to come. Now today we are back to the New Testament and to the worship of the church, and we worship the Christ who has come, and he has his body on earth through which we worship him, and of course that is the New Testament church. I have one more message on New Testament worship and then a final note in our series on the preservation of the church. And then afterwards, we will return to our study of the Old Testament covenant. Worship is our priority. We are concerned that we have the correct understanding of how we are to worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. Now, in every church, there are forms of worship, or styles of worship, if that's what you prefer. And often, these styles are quite different from each other. I'm not necessarily advocating a style, especially a style that's guaranteed, uh, supposedly a guaranteed method of attracting people to come to church. Because when we come to church, our primary concern is not that we are attractive to those that are attending, especially those who might criticize and say, well, I'm not getting uh, what I want out of the worship services. We're not overly concerned about what you get out of worship. We are concerned about whether we satisfy God that our worship is pleasing to him. I doubt that the Old Testament priests in Israel were too much uh, happy about the many, many animal sacrifices that needed to be brought that God required for worship in the Old Testament. I doubt that the priests loved to emerge from worship covered in blood and then to know that if he did this thing wrongly, if he made the wrong move, it could cause his death. Like Nadab and Abihu, who did the wrong thing in the worship of God, God just burned them up. So the, in the Old Testament, they certainly was not, were not concerned that worship was about them. Worship was about the holy God. And I also know that there are men in the Old Testament like David who were pleased to bring what the Lord required. And if God was pleased, it didn't matter who was displeased. The pleasure of God's people is to know that God delights in obedience and in sacrifices of praise according to his holy word. Now our text verses in John 4 are taken from a conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. 
And I'm not going to read the full conversation again. I trust that you are familiar with it. And if not, then you can catch up on the reading after this message. But Jesus was talking to this Samaritan woman about salvation. But there was also another very important topic that took up much of this conversation. They had a discussion about worship. That was a very important topic. Worship is a great subject to couple with salvation because the purpose of our salvation is that we might become worshipers of the true God. I was listening to a, to a sermon from years ago uh, when I was teaching Ephesians and I was reminded of how often this comes up in the messages that the purpose of our salvation is to glorify God. That, that was a, it's just a common theme that I often bring up. Everything that we do in the realm of our relationship with God concerns His glory. Our redemption from sin, our deliverance from hell, those are benefits that we receive from our salvation, but those are secondary. The primary purpose of salvation is foremost and always the glory of God. And this is what worship is. It is the recognition of how God deserves glory. So we find it no surprise that when Jesus talked to this woman, that he would speak to her about her need to be saved. And then side by side with that need, he would put the topic of worship. As he said in the passage, the the father seeks true worshipers. And his purpose in that conversation was to change her from the false worship that she had as a Samaritan to the true worship of God. Now, in in John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm not going to go back through the outline of the prior messages, except to just list for you the areas that we've already covered. Now, if you haven't heard the exposition of these, they are available on our website. The previous subjects that we talked about was, number one, that worship is regulated by truth. Number two... That worship requires the preaching of the word. Thirdly, we defined worship. Worship defined. And now just to refresh you a little on the last message uh, that we had at the end of November. And for continuity's sake, let me just talk a little bit to you about this this fourth area, the reverence of worship. We, We did cover that in the last message. And as I say, to kind of connect us and and to to get us back on track to where we are, number four is that worship must be reverent. It must be reverent, or it must be with respect and veneration of God, because when we come to worship, we enter the presence of the holy God. You remember that Isaiah was permitted to see into God's throne room, and there he saw the angelic seraphim and heard them cry, Holy, holy, holy holy. As I read that passage in Isaiah, I, it always strikes me that that is a scene that is just too magnificent to, to properly comprehend. 
And I think that's probably the way that Isaiah felt. When he saw the holiness of God personified, he was immediately reminded of what he was in relation to God. And he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah was not deluded about who he was when he was in the presence of God. And so he dared not to approach God without any feelings other than he was clothed in dishonor. That he was unworthy to lift his eyes to see such a magnificent sight. His assessment of the worth of any of us is reflected in what he wrote in the 64th chapter of his prophecy. Isaiah 64 verse 6, he said that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So Isaiah knew who he was. But I'm sad to say that there is much amiss in the modern church with modern Christians when it comes to recognizing who God is and how we are to worship him. Sometimes I wish that we could go back to the days of the Puritans. I mean, if anybody knew something about the right relationship to God and how to worship to God, it was them. They knew how to reverence God. And I I, I would like to see that in, in our services, that we truly do reverence God. Now, the last time I, I emphasized how we must know who God is, that we must recognize that God is holy, and that we must see how far apart we are from him, because he is completely unique in holiness. And so we must tread lightly when we come into his presence. We can't come with unconfessed sin. And that's one of the reasons that in our scripture reading time, every week I always say, let's have a time to confess our sins because we're entering into worship and we're in the presence of God and we don't want to come before him with sins unconfessed. We can't come without his requirements, but we must come with the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you do understand this, and I think most of you do, that that no one is welcome to approach God unless we have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That God does not welcome those who come without deep contrition and sorrow for sin. And so in attitude, not necessarily in physicality, but in attitude, we must come before the Lord with our heads down, with bended knees, And in fear of God's holiness. As scripture says, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now there are many who claim to belong to Christ. They say that they are Christians. They are sincere in their belief that they are going to heaven. But when you begin to question them more closely, it's apparent they've not given up sin. They claim to know Christ while still in sin, and they just hope that on judgment day, God will forgive them. And I'm afraid there are too many church members that live that way. 
They've never truly seen the holiness of God. They never reverence God and understand how God feels about sin. Now, if you consider for just a moment, think about this. What sin did to Jesus? What sin did to Jesus and what God had to do to remove sin? Then you would see that no one who continually lives in sin could truly be a Christian. This is what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3. He said, he that committed sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest in the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So if Jesus came to destroy sin and to destroy the works of the devil, how do those who are still living in sin claim to belong to Christ? You see, all of this has to do with the holiness of God. He doesn't save anyone without changing their disposition towards sin. His people always feel differently about sin once they've been saved. True believers do not habitually live in sin. And that's what John was saying in that passage. When he says a true believer cannot sin, what he's talking about is living habitually in sin. Because we very well know that we sin every day. But we don't sin and stay in sin and act as if that doesn't matter. John says that is impossible and still claim to be a child of God. So we must see the holiness of God. We must understand who he is to worship him and we must fear who God is. Now, if you remember, we spent a good deal of time with that in that last message pointing out how the fear of God must be recognized in our worship. And we talked about Christian songs and how many of them don't reflect fear, that they reflect familiarity and they reflect friendship with God. And that's not bad. That's a good thing if you keep the proper distance, if you keep that at arm's length. But too often, we, this, these songs don't represent the type of fear that Isaiah felt and that is knowing God's place and knowing our place, we must know how close we can get to God without overstepping and getting too familiar with God. And so I think it's good that we reconsider reverence, but that's just one of the topics. It is important, but we do need to move on. We're saved to worship. That's primary. That's why we're here. So we need to know what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now let's look then at our fifth area of discussion. This is where to worship. This takes us back to John 4 again. So let's back up to the 21st verse in John 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. In our previous messages, I've commented on the difference between Jewish worship and Samaritan worship. Don't have time to go into detail again today. So let me just say that the Jews were wrong because what they had done is to let ritualism replace 
proper worship. They were still worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem, but the heart of it and the purpose of it was wrong. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we read that he went into the temple complex. He drove out those that were cheating the people in the sale of sacrificial animals. He called them, uh, called the place a den of thieves. That's what he considered what was going on at the temple. The temple has become a den of thieves. And that's because of the dishonesty and the desecration of the holiness of that place. Their sacrifices no longer represented him. And that's what it was all about. That's what we've been reading in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices were to represent the Son of God who was to come and take away sin. But they didn't show that any longer. Their methods were consumed with sin, so they couldn't possibly be talking about the same God who would send his Son as a sacrifice for sin. And so with all that greed that was going on and bringing livestock into the courtyard of the temple, there was no way that you could say, well, these are people who have gathered to worship God. Jesus knew Of course, what was going on in Jerusalem as he talked to the Samaritan woman. He knew the temple would not stand as the place where God is to be worshipped. And that's because the glory had long since departed. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel. Let's go to chapter 4. And I want to discuss for just a moment how the glory of God can depart from his people. We talked a little bit about this in our study of the tabernacle. Uh, I think maybe even last week we, we read this same scripture or the week before. But I'd like to make a different point about it today. This is the story that takes place in the days of Eli. He was the high priest in Israel. And you remember it's in the time of the judges. And this was before there was a king in Israel. And during the years of the judges, there there were some serious breakdowns in the holiness of Israel's worship. While Samuel was still young and before he became a judge and a priest, Eli and his sons were in the priesthood. Eli was partly good and partly bad. He was good because he knew the Lord. He did have respect for his position. And there were plenty of high priests in Israel through the years that were just shameful and they didn't really know the Lord God. Eli was also, though, a bad priest because he didn't exercise enough control over his family, over his sons particularly. He allowed them to continue in the priesthood even though they were terribly wicked, immoral men. Well, in the scripture, the Israelites were about to go into battle with the Philistines The battle was fought, and then the Philistines prevailed, and 4,000 Israelites were killed. And so the Philistines defeated Israel. So Israel had a plan. They would fetch the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle at Shiloh, and they would bring it into the war camp as a symbol that God was with them. So they did. And when the Ark arrived, the whole camp shouted for joy. The ones that brought the ark were Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two evil sons. And they had no idea of the power of the ark. They were wicked and unholy men. 
They had no right to call on the power of God. But nonetheless, they are the ones that brought the ark and they expected that God would fight for them. Well, when the Philistines, the Philistines heard the shouts of the army of Israel, they were frightened. They heard all these shouts go up and they knew what the ark meant. They'd heard all the stories. They knew the power of Israel's God. This was not an unknown thing that the ark was brought into Canaan and they surrounded Jericho and the mighty walls of Jericho fell before Israel's God when the ark went around. But they had their gods and they chose to fight and hoped that by some miracle that they would win. So the battle was engaged and they fought. Israel was defeated again. And then the impossible happened. The Philistines captured the ark. Eli's two sons were killed. But what most disturbed Eli was the disposition of the ark. In all of Israel's battles, which were many, and they had suffered many defeats, but this is something that had never happened. Not in all the battles they ever fought had this happened. And so when he heard the devastating news about the ark, he was shocked. He fell backwards from his seat and broke his neck. Now, if you look at verse number 21, verses 19 and 20 describe the birth of Eli's grandchild. And in verse 21, his daughter-in-law named her child a very strange name. And she named the child Ichabod. And we talked about it in the last message. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. She named the child a foreboding name, Ichabod, which means no glory. The glory of God was departed from Israel. Because the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God's presence was seen in that brilliant light of the Shekinah. How do we apply that to worship today? I'm afraid this is the sad situation in thousands of churches today. There is much shouting and singing. There is much commotion that goes on. There is much noise that pretends worship. There is a semblance of worship. But the glory of God is long gone. The glory of God left the camp. And just as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, he says to unholy Christians today, you worship, you know not what. Well, we have in our text in John 4 a statement that neither Mount Gerizim nor Jerusalem is the place of worship. Now, that's what the Samaritan woman was looking for. This was her question. Where do we worship? Who's right about worship? What is the place to worship? And, and it may seem odd for me to say this, that there never was a place of worship. Well, it's true that Israel was given the tabernacle and the temple, and those were places of sacrifice. Those were places where the rituals of Judaism were practiced, but that they were not places of worship per se. And the reason for this is because worship is always a matter of the heart. That no matter how many sacrifices were brought to the temple, they meant nothing unless the heart of the worshipers 
was right. And we just witnessed what, what later Samuel told to Saul uh, about what God requires for worship. He says in, in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, Samuel said, he's talking to Saul, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected thee from being king. This is a heart attitude. Obeying God is a matter of dealing with sin and getting rid of it. So you can come to church and you can raise your hands. You can jump up and down. But there is no worship without a right heart. And that's because the heart is the only place to find worship. Now if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 1, we can see where this is graphically demonstrated in Isaiah's message to, to Israel. Israel was in rebellion against God. And Samuel said that rebellion is as witchcraft and to stubbornly disobey is iniquity and idolatry. In the second verse of chapter 1, Isaiah shows this. I want to begin reading with, begin reading with the first verse. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. You might want to circle the word rebelled. They have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner. And the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Let me put this for you in common vernacular. God said Israel was dumber than an ox and more stubborn than a donkey. The ox and the donkey have enough sense to know who owns and feeds them. Israel did not know. Now go down to verse number 12. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now here's the problem. They continued to bring their sacrifices. They still held all the feasts that were required. In other words, they were right there at the right place to worship. They went through all the worship ceremonies exactly as prescribed. But God would have none of it. He said it is iniquity. It is abomination. What's the problem? It was the problem of the heart. And so in verse 16 he says. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings. From before mine eyes. Cease 
to do evil. It's not the building. It's not the atmosphere. It's not the ambience. Worship is a whole life commitment. It is a whole heart commitment. Now, when the glory was gone from Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was nothing but a box. Just a box they carried around. And when the Jews desecrated the temple with buying and selling, the temple stood, but the glory was gone. So now we have church buildings. Some of them are beautiful. They are ornate. Some of them are very impressive. And some of them have thousands in the congregation. But the glory's not there. And the people worship like Samaritans and misguided Jews. They worship in vain. So we look at what goes on in many churches today. Some of you are familiar with this because you came out of it. The clothing of Old Testament priests is back. There are vestments. There are scapulars and miters. You find that in the high church. There are altars with candles. There's incense and there is smoke that wafts through the air in a pleasing aroma. Years ago, when we had a signboard out front, we put a message on the sign. It said, no smoke in mirrors. Our reference was to some of these churches, you know, that have smoke machines and strobe lights and all those things. So we said, no smoke in mirrors. Someone in the community sent me an email and said, well, I hope that you're not denigrating the use of incense in our worship. It is a wonderful part of our tradition. Well, it might be a tradition, but it's not worship. This is what the high church thought. They could bring in all the worship paraphernalia and God would be there. Even Baptists jumped on the bandwagon by putting in altars. Now, I'm not talking about a high altar like the Roman Catholic Church, but, but having an altar. I don't know how that happened because Baptists have never had altars in their churches. We've never done that. That's not historical. And then there are those in evangelical churches that have Starbucks. And you can have a peppermint mocha with the singing. And that adds to the pleasantry of worship. Lattes with singing does not make worship. Worship is the response of bending in reverence to God and beholding his glory. You can't conjure up worship with externals, with the gimmicks and the tricks. Some time ago, I received an email from a man who had a worship band. He was traveling around to churches to help them worship. And I thought it was a very peculiar thing that in his promo material, he said that he brought a unique style of worship to the church. So this is a fellow who claimed that he could bring worship to the church as if he carried it in a suitcase, that somehow he was able to make better worship than can be done, could be done without him. Isn't that something? That's nothing but a bunch of rubbish of the rankest sort. Worship can't be toted around. And worship is not a place. Nobody can bring it to you. Worship is an attitude of the heart, and you bring it with you when you are obedient to Christ and when your life bears the image of Christ. Imagine the audacity of some 
two-bit wannabe rock band that thinks they can bring worship to anyone, much less to a congregation that they don't know anything about, that's made up of people who may not be any closer to God than Job's turkey. I want you to listen to this comment by John MacArthur. I wouldn't normally read a quote that this long, so you bear with me. In fact, most books on preaching say don't read quotes. Well, I don't read books on preaching, and so you can probably tell that. This is what MacArthur wrote. He said, candles, incense, miter caps, and other atmospheric accoutrements borrowed from medieval high church ceremony have made surprising inroads into ostensibly evangelical churches in recent years. It is not unusual nowadays to encounter such things and other trappings of highly formal religion blended incongruously with house church style informality, unstructured conversation instead of a sermon, or comfy chairs arranged in the round rather than church pews and ranks. I want to stop there for just a minute and comment. I had intended to do this, but it bothers me, so I've got to say something about it. Um, we, we had a missionary that we used to support, and uh, I went on his website. He, he became a pastor of a church, and I noticed in the pictures that they showed, they had stopped, took away the pulpit, and they did what MacArthur just said here, put the chairs in a round, and instead of preaching to the people, we have a conversation with each other. We just have a conversation. That's not New Testament. There's authority in the pulpit. There's authority in the preaching of God's word. This is not a time for us to give and take. We have a time for that at another time. We we can do that and we can discuss. This is not a time for discussion. This is a time to hear from God, to hear his word, hear a message from the word, and again, hopefully something that you grow with. Anyway, comfy chairs arranged in the round rather than church pews in ranks. The idea behind all such embellishments is that externals, atmosphere, and activities are the real essentials of corporate worship. Nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, neither candles and crosses nor cushions and coffee add anything whatsoever to our public worship. In fact, artificial liturgical contrivances and emblems of pop culture alike have a tendency to detract from authentic worship. Worship is not energized by synthetic helps. If you feel you absolutely must have some highly formalized ritual or a certain kind of mood music, what you're doing isn't true worship at all. Music and liturgy can perhaps assist or express a worshiping heart, but they cannot make a non-worshiping heart into a worshiping one. The danger is that they can give a non-worshiping heart the sense of having worshipped. So, the crucial factor for worship in the church is not the form of worship, but the state of the hearts of the saints. If our corporate worship isn't the expression of our individual worshiping lives, it is unacceptable. If you think you can live any way you please and then go to church on Sunday morning and turn on worship with the saints, you're wrong. I wasn't going to say this either, but this has bothered me. And that is, as Baptists, we 
of course believe in the eternal security of believers. We believe in the eternal security of believers. We also believe in the perseverance of believers, which is another, it's a related topic in what many Baptists actually don't believe. They won't accept perseverance of believers. I believe in both. But we, we believe in the eternal security of believers. And so resting upon that doctrine, there are many who think, well, okay, you, you see a church member living in sin, living in sin, living in sin, continual living in sin, going on living in sin, this year, next year, on and on, living in sin, that they're just Christians who are eternally secure, but they become carnal Christians. I have, this is in a sermon coming up later. I guess maybe that's why it, it I, I prepare so far in advance that I can mix up sermons. Uh, but this is one of the things, you know, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that carnality, the carnal mind, is enmity with God. How can you be a Christian and be an enemy of God? There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. So we can't rely upon our eternal security and say, oh, well, I've, I've, I'm, I can't lose my salvation, so I just go ahead and live any way that I choose. And there are many Baptists accused of believing that, and many, in fact, do, it seems. No, if you, if you continue to live in sin, you better check off the eternal security thing and forget about that because you've never been saved. You can't have eternal security if you haven't first been saved. So anyway, that's off my chest. So worship always comes back to this. I'll repeat it. I will continue to repeat it. It comes back to the heart. How about your heart? Is it right with God? This is what God said to Isaiah. This is what God said, or what Jesus said to the woman at the well. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's no different than when he gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the temple were not worship, but what they did do was to teach the people a lifestyle of worship. And this is the way we need to think in relation to the church. You come here to practice a lifestyle of worship. And you may think that you can get it elsewhere. If I tell you that worship is not the place, that worship is in the heart, then you can say, well, I take my heart anywhere I want to go. I can just be anywhere, and that's fine. I can be elsewhere. I don't need to go to church. Well, you go back to the Old Testament, and you see that although the temple did not make worship, the people were required to go there anyway. And in the New Testament, it's not at the building. It's the gathering of the people. And what does the Word of God say? We are commanded to assemble as the church. Ah, but we have some who have decided that stay-at-home Christianity is fine. And they can have their freelance family home worship. And I would ask you, what is that but disobedience to Scripture? You, you, you can't hope to worship if you're a Saul that wants to sacrifice at the family altar and ignore obedience to God in the church. So just like him, you would be practicing rebellion. And rebellion is as witchcraft. Worship is serious stuff. God's particular, and you can act holily and 
piously. You can read the Bible for hours and stay intensely in prayer if you want. But if you disobey God, all that he hears is the bleeding sheep of disobedience. Well, let's add one more part to our discussion, then we'll finish for today. Number six, whom do we worship? Whom do we worship? That seems like a very easy question to answer. And in one way it is. We say, worship God. Just worship God. But how did Jesus say it to the Samaritan woman? He said at the end of verse number 21, worship the Father. Why didn't Jesus just say, worship God? Well, we need to remember that Jesus had some important, some important ways to reveal that he is God. I'm amazed that many who say that Jesus was just a man, or Jesus was a created being, or Jesus was an angel, and those are all common things that are taught in other uh, semi-quasi-Christian churches. They're not Christian churches, but they claim to be. So they say these things. He's a just, he was a man. He's a created being. He's an angel. Or there are some who say, well, Jesus was just a good moral example. I don't think there's anyone who would give reverence and worship to a good example. Jorge is a good example. I haven't spent too much time this week worshiping Jorge. Now his wife is a his wife is a good example. And he spends a lot of time worshiping her. <laughs> the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, Jesus didn't play that game. He was here to do the will of the Father. And in this passage he speaks of Worshiping the Father in verse 21 and verse 23. And Jesus was not speaking of the Father and his relationship to us. Now it's true. God is our Father. And we look to him for his care and his comfort as a Father. But Jesus was not speaking of our relationship to the Father. He was speaking of his. The Jews understood what he meant when he called God his father. Now, of course, he was not saying that he was the seminal son of God. They never would have understood it that way. He was not God's offspring. But to say that God is his father is to say that he is the same essence as God, that he has the same nature as God, which is to say he is God. And he couldn't have said it more plainly than when he said, I and my father are one. And there are many, many instances of this in scripture. When Jesus asked the Jews, why do you want to stone me? They said, because you make yourself God. And so that's clear evidence that Jesus intended that everyone would know that he is God. And since there is only one God... He is the God to be worshipped. That's what this is about. Now, our politically correct leaders make it a point to be inclusive, although some of them claim to be Christians. So they'll, they'll say this. 
because they want to be inclusive, because they don't want to be controversial, whatever it might be, they'll say all faiths worship the same God. That no matter what you think of Christ, God is still the Father that all faiths worship. So they think that if a person hasn't even heard of the true God, doesn't know anything about Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter because still the Father is the common denominator for us all. And so if a person is sincere in his religion, then everything is okay, it's fine, it's all fine with the Father. Can you see how that tramples everything that Jesus taught? If you do not acknowledge that he is of the same essence of the Father and that he is God, you cannot worship God. All faiths do not worship the same Father. If Christ is not lifted and believed as the only sacrifice for sin, the only way to the Father, there is no salvation. And thus there is no worship. A few years ago, I was driving out in the remote area between Lake Sonoma and Stewart's Point. I got way back there on those narrow roads, and I passed a place that I had no idea that existed. There's a huge complex out there of Buddhist temples. There's a Tibetan Lama that lives out there. There are temples that are over 10 stories high out there in the middle of nowhere. There are golden domes, hundreds of prayer wheels. You can't really see much of that from the road. So when I got home, I went online to look that up. And I looked at the satellite view. It was amazing. It was something to see. And you can read all about it on their website. There is much worship that goes on out there. There's lots of humanitarian stuff that's done. It's commended by all except by the neighbors who don't like the traffic. They don't like the commercialism of it. But you know something? All this worship that goes on out there, but they don't know anything about Jesus. They acknowledge him. It's not like they don't know that he existed or exist, but they don't know who he really is. No matter how many temples they build, and no matter matter how many prayers are offered, there is no true worship there. And as Paul would say, not to worship Christ is to worship demons. Now, that's popular. Imagine one of our leaders who claims to be Christian who says, you know, those guys over there in the Buddhist temple, they're worshiping demons. They're not going to say that. We'll say it here. And we'll say it out there if we need to. That's what Paul said. They worship demons. And Jesus said, you worship, you know not what. The missing ingredient in the worship is Jesus Christ. Acknowledging a higher power doesn't really mean very much. PG&E has a lot of power too. You can worship them. This is what's happened in America though. We were once a country that acknowledged the Trinity of God. When our founders talked about God in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, which God or what God do you think they meant? Sadly, the truth of the matter is, and, and I'm afraid that many American Christians are, are uh, deluded about this, they were much, much of the time wrong about God. But at least the God that they meant was not the God, not gods of idols, in idols, not the gods of pagans, 
They meant Jehovah God. And they meant Jesus. And some of them didn't understand that very well. If you know the history of it, that's at the time our country began about the time, in the time of the Age of Enlightenment. And in the Age of Enlightenment actually clouded their vision and they weren't really all that enlightened. But the general consensus in the founding of this country is that people knew Jesus is eternal God. And when we worship, this is who we must worship. And so when Jesus said Father in John 4, he didn't mean an ambiguous being that's called by many different names. Can you imagine God saying to Moses, and he starts out, By my name Jehovah, I was not known unto them. But you can call me Ashtoreth, or you can call me Molech, or you can call me Allah. It's all the same. No, we must be as exclusive as God is exclusive. Jesus said, worship the Father. And he means by that to worship him. Worship the Trinity. That's the only real worship. So let's stick with this. We are exclusive. We are separate. We do not pretend to worship the same God as others. We worship the God of truth. And truth is told in the pages of Scripture. Whether a person calls himself a Christian doesn't matter. You must be a Christian to worship God. So we don't take at face value those who say they're Christians. The Bible demands evidence. How about the heart? Is it right with God? Do you live the faith that you claim to believe. Are you concerned about sin in your life? Do you regularly talk with God? Do you confess and come to Him with sorrow over your sin? There's no true worship if God's prescription for worship isn't followed. Worship is not intended to please you. It's intended to please God. And if He's pleased, then real Christians will be pleased too. Get this right, or you'll never worship God. Jesus said, true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for all these things, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.